welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 18, Welcome, recorded here in what's been a pretty cool spring in Durham Region on June 14th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to begin with thanking Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E again, for uh, letting us use his music to do the, the intros and outros here. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Grow Old or Don't, and uh, our outro is Centipede. We have some corrections. In episode 12, Hammond, I mentioned that Dr. Harding was given a first name Jerry in the junior novelization of the film. This is interesting because he is given no name in Michael Crichton's novel, nor in the film. So why a name in the junior novelization? Well, I just happened to stumble upon the actor who plays Dr. Harding, and you get one guess as to what his first name is. Yeah, that's right. It's Gerald. In fact, Gerald R. Molden is his name, and it's spelled with a G just like in the junior novelization. So it would appear that the author of the junior novelization felt it was important that the character have a first name, checked to see what it was, and found that Dr. Harding was played by a Gerald, and then used that name. That's my working theory anyhow. Who knows? Uh, What else? Our cat has already had its lunch, but I was fooled by its incessant whining and begging that it surely hadn't been fed. But upon conferring with my wife, turns out that the little pest had gotten her wet food and she successfully manipulated her way into a double lunch. And that really gets my goat. And upon editing, I missed that Saturday, June 10th, and Saturday, June 11th were totally wrong, apparently. Saturday was June 11th, and Sunday was June 12th. In some circles, that's important, and in particular in my circle, that is true. So I missed that, and uh, that's a correction I need to make. (laughs) But in better news... Uh, because Jurassic World Dominion watchers will be keen to hear more about Therizinosaurs, how about some Segnosaurian news? And also check back on episode 13, Chateau, for a new species of Therizinosaur, the Perilous Therizinosaurus. That's episode 13. Our paper here is The Plantigrade Segnosaurians, Sloth Dinosaurs or Bear Dinosaurs. Published just before New Year's this year, the paper considers an unusual trackway found in Tajikistan, known to be from the Albion stage of the early Cretaceous, from about 100. 5 to 113 million years ago. The footprints are an ichnogenus, and they're called Macropotosaurus gravis, meaning heavy, big-footed lizard, and they were discovered in 1964. These types of tracks are known in Tajikistan, in Utah, Poland, and Morocco, and are now believed to be from a Segnosaurian dinosaur, which is now referred to as a Therizinosaurid. Therizinosaurs are known to be large, bipedal animals derived from carnivorous ancestors and evolved Uh, into herbivorous uh, diets. It was likely feathered and had large hand claws and a small head, spanning in size from 7.5 feet to maybe 33 feet long. They had long necks, wide torsos, and hind feet with four toes used for walking resembling those of basal sauropodomorphs. The most distinctively identified by their enormous clawed hands, suggested to be used for grasping and shearing leafy branches, perhaps like a ground sloth. And some skin impressions show these were covered in a a coat of primitive down-like feathers. Now, if Macropotosaurus is known from an Albion deposit, as the paper suggests, 
and not a late Cretaceous formation as Wikipedia articles suggest, then this could be a primitive ancestor to the more commonly known therizinosaurs. The footprints are described as plantigrade, meaning what is the plantar fasciitis of our feet between the toes and the heel would on their feet be flat to the earth. The author deduced that the tracks were from a therizinosaur by comparing the tracks with other track morphologies and pez skeletal morphologies, so it checked other dinosaur feet and other dinosaur trackways. It's posited that the ancestor of segnosaurs were probably facultatively digitigrade and underwent a short-term stage as arboreal climbing forms and then reversed to a purely terrestrial life. The author elaborates that to, quote, return to plantigrade locomotion in segnosaurs apparently required increased area of support during the slow, obligate bipedal locomotion of these heavy theropods. So, I don't know. If you believe all that, it's just a hypothesis, but uh, an interesting one that I guess you would conclude from looking at trackways. And I've got a Canadian paper that includes the Atrocia raptor, which is also in Jurassic World Dominion too. This paper hypothesizes at how dromaeosaurs evolved thanks to new insights from CT scanning. Volume 41 of the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published the article, A New Hypothesis of Eudromaeosaurian Evolution. CT scans assist in testing and constructing morphological characters. And this was published February 21st, 2022. Eudromaeosauria are considered true dromaeosaurs and are known to be relatively large-bodied, feathered, hypercarnivores with diets consisting almost entirely of other terrestrial vertebrates that flourished in the Cretaceous period. They're located almost exclusively from the Northern Hemisphere and first appeared in the early Cretaceous period and survived until the end of the Cretaceous. The paper argues that because the maxilla, and think like that's the upper jaw, is an especially diagnostic feature for identifying eudromaeosaurs, the researchers chose to CT scan and analyze the maxillae of a variety of eudromaeosaurian species, the Achiroraptor from Montana, the Atrociraptor from Alberta, and Deinonychus from Montana as well, and compared them with other eudromaeosaurians from Asia and North America. Quote, Phylogenetic analysis recovered three well-defined clades within eudromaeosauria and corroborated occurrence data within the fossil record, says the paper. Achiroraptor and Atrociraptor were recovered as derived members of Soronitholestinae. Deinonychus is recovered as a basal eudromaeosaurian, sharing features with dromaeosaurines and Soronitholestines, hence making it more basal. It had traits uh, shared by both of them, meaning that they likely both derive from the same guy. Quote, These results challenge previous biogeographic hypotheses suggesting Asian and North American faunal interchange during the late Cretaceous and support convergence of traits relating to snout dimensions and proportions, says the paper. So perhaps these animals didn't traipse back and forth between North America and Asia as much as previously suggested, or at least the dromaeosaurus didn't. This could be for a variety of reasons, including impassable mountain ranges, volcanic activity, oceans or deserts, and things like that. And as such, these animals remained in their place and evolved independently of one another. Previously, a phylogenetic breakdown that I have on record said that eudromaeosaurs broke into three categories. The Sauronitholestinae, of which the Atrociraptor was a member, Dromaeosaurinae, of which Deinonychus was a member, and Velociraptorinae, of which Archiroraptor was a member. So this new research suggests that if we're to consider the maxillae indicative of speciation, Deinonychus would be a Eudromaeosaurinae, which later derived into other subgroups, of which Soronitholestinae is one, and in it would be Atrociraptor and Archiroraptor. More importantly, this means that if Archiroraptor isn't a member of Velociraptorinae any longer, 
and the Velociraptor RNA are known from Mongolia, aka Asia, and instead it derives its ancestry from North America, then perhaps there's less faunal interchange between the continents than previously believed. I think that's what it's saying, anyhow. I note neither of the Eudromiosaurian families touched the Velociraptor RNA, which is an even more derived late Cretaceous animal from Mongolia. So Velociraptors are distinctly unlike the three Eudromiosaurians mentioned in this paper. And I, I wonder, like I haven't seen the movie Jurassic World Dominion yet, but I wonder how alike the Velociraptors and the Atrociraptor in the film look and act and things like that, because they're described to be distinctly different <laughs> from different parts of the world. Of course. But with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Joining me today is Chris McDonald. Chris is the co-host of the GargantuCast and a feature writer for Phaser Media, the parent company of GargantuCast. He products are mostly general pop culture and GargantuCast focuses on giant monster movies. And he, in his writing, dabbles in horror and sci-fi uh, films and cultural products as well. Uh, Chris and I met at a county fair. Wait, what state are you from? Florida. We met. We met at this Florida State Fair, <laughs> and uh, it turns oh, out, yeah, that, 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 that's just the back of a Denny's. <laughs> and instead of entering a pie eating contest, we wound up eating the the humble pie eating contest, which resulted in public humiliation. And Chris and I were required to apologize and accept responsibility for publicly sharing the proven fact that your cell phone, the one you carry with you, can have up to ten times as much bacteria on it than a toilet seat. But the weather was 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and the humidity was only 100%, so it wasn't all bad. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for joining me today. You ever been to the Florida um, State Fair? I Let's just say every day in Florida is a state fair. That's a good... <laughs> okay, that's a great way to put it. So what on earth made you, Chris, decide that you should jump onto a podcast with a stranger to talk about Jurassic Park? I just love Jurassic Park. Okay. I mean, this is one of my all-time favorite movie franchises you know i'm in it all the way through you know even when some of the films are yeah i'm just i like dinosaurs uh -huh. i grew up on dinosaurs you know before dinosaurs is what introduced me to my love of giant monster movies you know godzilla is basically introduced as a giant dinosaur to a five-year-old me uh -huh. and before i was introduced to my love godzilla i was introduced to uh my love of dinosaurs via dress park i was born in 94 so i was Gen Zero when it comes to the dress park craze. <laughs> right on, but you can still uh, still love movies from that era, that's for sure. No matter, I think it's ageless, of course. So, what is your earliest Jurassic Park memory then? I say the earliest is just owning the VHS. Since mm -hmm. I don't know, I ever, I just had memories. You know, I was just, I love dinosaurs. Apparently, a family legend is my first word as a dinosaur. I kind of squint at that, but I'll, I'll just take it. <laughs> and I just grew up just with this franchise. Jurassic Park is probably one of the first dinosaur movies I've seen. Okay. Uh, along with, you know, Land Before Time. So that's a great, you know, juxtaposition of those two types of dinosaur media. Sure. And I just been in love with this franchise. You know, I, you know, I love Jurassic Park. I, I grew up on the Lost World. You know, those toys were awesome. Mm -hmm. um, the first time I went to Universal Studios, I grew up in California before going to Florida. So either way, Jurassic Park is in both locations. Yeah. And my, I was telling my mom, we're going straight to the Jurassic Park ride. And it's just <laughs> been, uh, like, it introduced me to the field of paleontology, which I, it's one of those fields of science that I always keep my ear to the ground because I'm just fascinated with it. Mm -hmm. And again, through dinosaur media, I fell in love with giant monster media or kaiju films mm -hmm. um, based for those who are uninitiated. 
And, you know, I love Godzilla. I love Gamera. I love the works of Ray Harryhausen. And I feel Jurassic Park really introduced me to the films that kind of inspired it. Right on. I get that. And um, kind of mirroring that that horror and monster movie and, and those concepts, the way I stumbled across you guys was because uh, you're able to host the Velocipastors director, Brendan Steer, on your podcast. Uh, which ben, is... Brendan, Brendan is such a delight. He yeah. is a delight. That's super good. To, it would be a, uh, a coup for me to get him. I haven't been able to reach him yet, but I want to. Brendan, it... I want you to come on, but but if uh, do it, Brendan, how do did, it. How did you catch him? Like, what? Did, uh, first of all, how did you come across Velocipaster? What's your history with that? And uh, what was it like having a chance to, to talk to somebody who's, who's made something like so, that? Velocipaster, we just stumbled. I stumbled upon the poster of. I follow a lot of like horror uh, news uh, sites, mm-hmm. and someone shared a poster of this movie. I was just like, I have to see this. Yeah, I need to see this. And, you know, we showed my friends and um, Anthony, who is the um, co-founder of Phaser. And before it was Phaser, it was part of uh, another website called Something Ghoulish, which was focused more on horror, uh, had an interview series. And he managed to get in contact with Brendan. And uh, Brendan and Anthony, you know, got it off. They had a really great interview. And through Anthony, I managed to like, hey, we should have Brendan on you know, our Jurassic Park episode. Let's have the director of Velocipaster talk about the greatest dinosaur movie of all time, uh, along with Velocipaster, which is another greatest dinosaur movie of all time. Mm-hmm. And we brought Brandon on, and Brandon was a huge delight. It was a great episode, for sure. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorites we recorded, for sure, for sure. It's definitely my top five favorites. I remember uh, I used to run a, and I still do, a dinosaur's Google alert, and I get an email on it. I don't know for how long I've been doing it, but since... 2004 or something like that in any case uh he had a must have been a a proof of concept trailer or something he did in film school or something it was like the original (laughs) concept of velocipaster and that trailer came across my desk at a time where i was like i can't get enough of this i hope this guy does something then when he made the movie i was like oh i can't believe it it blew me away we got to see it in a film festival um, nice and it was a midnight screening because it was obviously going to be the star of the star of the festival and so it was it was a late night (laughs) <laughs> and uh it was i remember just laughing you know when you're so tired that like you become delirious in a way that, yeah and things catch you off guard much more like harder and they're, they're just ridiculous moments that uh that are sort of lampooning that b-movie uh motif I, that i yeah you just laugh opening, that opening joke yeah v, fire vfx here yeah complete like we when our friends watched it we had to pause the movie because we were just laughing so hard. <laughs> yeah, and there's something to be said about the pacing of it all, where there's he, he lets it sit so you can laugh. Like, the timing of it is just terrific. But it sets off the, the tone for the film as well. Like, this is what you're going to get. Yeah. It, is, yeah. it is kind of a, a, a mockery of low-budget films and yeah. also a low-budget film. So it, <laughs> it's yeah. just perfect in so many ways. But, it's, yeah, love so to get him. It's just to the light. I don't know. I've been tracking that for ages. He does amazing. His band, Free Parking, and he does a bunch of original stuff. So much music. He's done amazing stuff. That guy. Oh, yeah. Cool, cool guest. Good get for you. You win. (laughs) (laughs) And so that ties into that horror element because there's a kind of like a goriness to it that's, again, cheap but still exciting. And uh, and that's fun. And and that kind of ties into what we were hoping to, to discuss today in terms of the, the horror elements that are in the Jurassic Park novel. 
that perhaps didn't translate specifically into the film, and most of them did not, but are certainly there. And although the book doesn't necessarily read as a, as a true horror novel, those elements remain. So, I, I usually argue that the Jurassic Park novel is sci-fi horror. Sure. It is very much sci-fi horror in terms of just the existential horror of, you know, bringing these things back to life and the ethics of it and just the horror of dinosaurs hacking people. And, you know, one of the things people cite about the original novel is it really feels like you're reading a not a, like a, like an eco horror novel <laughs> with the way it just like, I feel like the best comparison is Peter Benchley's Jaws, Peter. which is funny. Another, which another thing Steven Spielberg will work on. Okay. It just feels like with the first Wrath of Mark film, it gives you the awe of these are animals, but the novel is just like, yeah, these are animals and nature's not pretty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that too. And I think the whole concept is, is it safe? And the answer is no. So people need to be in great danger. And they're not just running from dinosaurs. They're getting they're getting caught by dinosaurs too. And that's that's a yeah. big part of it. So what, uh, I guess, would you say before we jump into this, would make something a horror element in your opinion? I say horror is, uh, this is a, like one of those things. It's just like putting a horror fan on the spot. Like what counts as horror? Because there's they, things that have been debated whether or not it's count as horror. You know, people have horror argued is Jurassic Park a horror franchise. Mm. People have argued if something is is Jaws horror mm. is which I say yes. I think the is the level of fear the characters experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you yes. know, in an action film, yeah, there's a fear of death, but that's not what the it's invoked in the audience. Like maybe there's a little bit of suspense, but mostly it's invigorating. While in something like Jurassic Park, the fear is not only the characters are scared, the audience is mm-hmm, scared. Mm-hmm. It, it's the it's definitely the intent. Like yes, there are horrific things happening, say like a Fast and Furious film, but no one is scared watching the film. But if you watch a Final Destination movie mm-hmm. involving a car crash, you're scared, and the audience is scared. Right. Uh, it's it's always just about the intent and what is is trying to be invoked in the form of media. Like what is the form of media wants from the audience. I think I feel is the best way to compare it. You make such a great point in in bringing up that element of suspense that you need to draw out the the moment that the strike, like when the, when the strike occurs, you need to make them worry about it for a while, and that really plays on your on your sensitivities as you're watching. I think of Silence of the Lambs as one of you know obviously the shining examples of suspense to horror, and that making that translation uh, segue segue one another and. Uh, Jurassic Park does that so well where the shot lingers on something and they don't just strike right away. You always have to have them kind of pursuing and plodding along. It's excellent. There's a lot of foreshadowing that kind of draws out that suspense in the novel as well. It, uh, it plays well. So that's a good point by you. That's uh, that's exactly a good part of it. It's also just, I feel like just how explicit the danger is because the original novel is incredibly gory. <laughs> it, this, if, if this film, if Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park movie was... Uh, like a one-to-one adaptation, that would have been a very strong R rating. It mm-hmm. would not have been like PG-13. It would have been like akin to, what's funny is, if you want like something that's more accurate to just the explicitness of Dress Park, it's the rip-off Carnosaur, Roger Corman's Carnosaur, I feel, captures more of the explicit, like, you know, gore of it. And mm-hmm. the original Dress Park is incredibly gory. Yeah. <laughs> And sad moments too, and we'll get through them for sure. How do they, I guess the, the horror element 
manifest into the monster movie. Like the Gargantua cast is about like the large, large building sized monsters. And so yeah. like that, that human scale is is lost in a way that I mean, it, they destroy entire ecosystems as they walk around versus maybe a, a velociraptor is much more corporal uh, danger. It, it's much more, per, it's a personal threat. Yeah, so how, how does the, the, the horror element translate into the Gargantua cast or into those you know bigger bodied films? So with giant monster films, a lot of times is the best way to ant like whereas Jurassic Park is basically you know eco horror, you know animal horror. With films we cover, you know the better giant monster movies, the better Godzilla, you know the original 1954 Gojira, um, Bong Joon Ho's The Host is an example we point out a lot. Mm -hmm. Cloverfield is is the idea of these things are so big they're basically walking natural disasters. Yeah. And the thing is, like, as someone who lives in Florida, sometimes being in a hurricane is terrifying. I'll bet, yeah, yeah. So I think the, it's the idea is, what if the hurricane is thinking and it's not happy? <laughs> yeah. It, uh, Shin Godzilla is another film where it brings up just the, um, the horror of both a natural disaster as well as the horror of nuclear danger, you know, like, especially with, as well as the original Gojira, you know. The film came out nine years after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And mm -hmm. if you watch the Japanese version, it's overtly horror. It is a horror film. Mm -hmm. And you, you feel the horror of these are from Japan, from people who lived through or known people who lived through, you know, nuclear horror firsthand. Mm -hmm. I think there's a fascinating connectivity between that concept and, and how Jurassic Park begins in that there is a, a human performed action that has an environmental consequence that leads to this mutation to wreak havoc on everyone. And so in, in, in some of the Godzilla films, sometimes he's an ancient monster. Sometimes he's, he's a byproduct of, um, of nuclear radiation. Is that consistent? Yeah, it, like, is that, how does that play out? It, it depends on the time. The Godzilla <laughs> franchise has, it has timelines. Okay. So it just depends on the timeline of which films, but there are four eras of Godzilla, and they each have their own timelines. Okay. That's a big can of worms, but basically, it's usually nuclear power is involved in some way. Mm -hmm. Either it awakens him, or it flat-out mutated him. Either way, Godzilla probably wouldn't have, uh, be awakened if, you know, man doesn't uh, hasn't been meddling with powers they don't understand, which is right. a major, major theme of the Jurassic Park franchise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as it's very, and it has been said multiple times, one of the main inspirations Forrest Spielberg, when he decided to direct Jurassic Park, is is Godzilla. Is that right? You mentioned uh, opening God a big can of worms. It'd be a can of big worms if you were Matthew Broderick, because I think that's what he started yeah. off his Godzilla journey with. Is my goodness, these these worms are much larger. Yeah, <laughs> um, like Jurassic Park and King Kong uh, have been cited as some of the main inspirations for Jurassic Park, and Spielberg has said he's a big fan of classic monster movies, mm -hmm. and you know as well. You know, King Kong, Godzilla, the works of Ray Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. So it starts off, uh, like we were saying, um, in a similar fashion, very, very similar fashion, where, where Crichton is uh, forewarning the consequences of playing with biotechnology, that it is opening this can of worms, that once you let it out, it's going to be free and loose, and the whole world's going to... There's no control. It's going to be out of control, and the consequences are going to be dire. And... Instead of getting a Godzilla, we get a little park. Foreshadowing is 
we, we start off in the horror narrative with this concept of the raptor or the hoopia that begins at the very beginning yeah. where we get this it, ghost-like entity that might be stealing children or something like that or it, stealing it, souls. it almost makes it more of a like a mythical like a demon mm-hmm like it, it, it already brings in more of that superstitious, existential fear mm-hmm. into like we don't even see the raptors. We just see what the raptors are doing. Yeah, and it's uh, obviously terrifying. The guy's got <laughs> uh, gashes down. I think was his femoral artery spurting. I know that he had a gash, and you could see his femur. Uh, you got gashes. You see bone. Um, there yeah. is the saliva, which apparently it's thick and viscous. Yeah. Which almost seems to imply something like that. I love the sword, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, there's some. Maybe there's something is a, a reagent in there. I know that it stinks. So they, there's a lot of these uh, elements that make make you wrinkle your nose. Just this concept of the defensive wounds on the hands that they're lying about what it is that has performed this. They say it was a backhoe accident when, of course, it was obviously a mauling. They 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 steal the camera. So there's a there's a conspiratorial nature to it as well. That whatever it is, they're trying to keep it contained. They're they're not doing a very good job, and it's extraordinarily dangerous. It's fatal. Um, and uh, you know they go to do mouth to mouth, and the and the uh, the attendant Manuel is like, "No, you're going to get infected by the spirit. Like you can't do it." And uh, it plays up this idea too that you know they're not usually superstitious people, but upon discovering this and making the connection that this may be the hoopia, that all of a sudden. There is nothing more important. Like, do not resuscitate. You know what I mean? Like, leave this guy alone. Yeah. He's lost, and uh, you, you're next if you if you if you try and help him. And there, there's something it, really it, morbid about it, that. It, it kind of remi- again going back to Jaws. It really reminds me of the opening of Jaws. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the girl. She goes skinny dipping. You don't see the shark, right? But you see what the shark is doing to her. Mm-hmm. So with this, like, we don't see what the raptor. We see what the raptor did to this guy, and this guy you know managed to you know luckily or unluckily live just a few more like minutes before dying until he's being killed right then and there yeah and then then there's nothing more horrifying than like we're only five pages into this thing he bolts upright and starts vomiting blood all over the place with his dying words being raptor and so it's it's fascinating it's horrifying uh and it really sets the tone for like what are we getting into here it really sets it is very it's one of those um examples of praising the villain mm-hmm. and it's you know setting up a worthy villain that uh, somebody that yeah it will be formidable to go up against and it begs the question what are they hiding out on that island so there's uh, obviously suspense which is really well done but then uh, we don't get like um raptors of course the next thing we get are these mysterious little lizards the compies yeah so uh, from your they do a good job with the compies as well like they're not the big big villain of course uh, they're obviously not the the culprit that is performing the this uh, mauling that happened to the construction worker, but um, they are consequential in, in their own right. <laughs> what were your impressions of the copies? Maybe at the beginning of the book, towards the end, the different levels. Yeah, it the best way to describe it, it feels like a Stephen King story. Okay, because it feels like crying was just like I'm writing a dinosaur horror sci-fi book. How would Stephen King think of it? And you know, he you know thought bubble, and you just see a picture of Stephen King, and he just says, "Kill the kids." <laughs> okay. And you know, yeah, like it's one of those things you forget the the way the drives your way. Um, 
the novel opens, which takes a little some cues for, uh, that Lost World will take in the opening, but not as harshly. Mm-hmm. Is there are chi- there is child there is child death? Yeah, in this book, like you know, a baby literally gets eaten alive by the compies, and you know, it again, it shows just like oh, these little things. You think they're cute, but they're they like these are they are animals, and you know, there are cases where small animals are still deadly to children and infants. And, you know, it just shows that, you know, this book is, it's also, it's one of those cases of um, where it's a method where you, when you open a book or open any story, you want to hit the audience as hard as possible to set up the tone. Yeah. So with the, um, the mauling and the death of the the baby from the compies, it just, the audience get, makes it, it it sends a message that no, if these, if we already got through the taboo of killing child, which is one of those big no-nos in a mm-hmm. lot of Western media, yeah, and um, we are the the book just opens with that, so it's very clear that you know, like the audience is now just like they're willing to kill a baby. What else are they willing to do? Yeah, absolutely right, and yeah, it raises the stakes entirely. That's flat out simple, um, and I think the way he crafts that scene where he comes across the the. The dead in- so the attack on the Tina Bowman is is separate from from what happens to the baby at the at the clinic, but when when the midwife Elena Morales comes into the to the, the crib, first of all there's a power outage I think there might be another storm going on at the time so you've already got those elements of of thundering rain and lightning and uh, the power's out so it's dark but she sees a bird on the wind or she hears chirping and she thinks that it's a bird and that this is a, a token of good luck. And so she goes in thinking, ah, the baby's fine, I'm sure. And, uh, and this reassuring, uh, I guess, superstition that, ah, good, good luck is falling on this child. And then she looks in and, she's, and he calls them specifically, they look, they're perched like gargoyles hunched over the bassinet with, with chunks yeah. of the baby's face dangling from their jaws. And then they scurry away, leaving uh, bloody three-toed footprints on the window ledge, which the three-toed thing was kind of hammered into your head for... Uh, for all of the descriptions that we're going in. So, I mean, really, really gross and, and, um, and super sad. Like, you're right. That, that's kind of like the moment, like some people got, you deserve what they get in terms of like, uh, yeah. poetic justice, but this poor baby certainly didn't. It, it, it shows that, you know, these things don't discriminate mm-hmm. and that, that yeah. these, are, these are wild animals and, you know, they're kind of like freaks of nature as well. It's so it's very clear that, you know, they're they're looking for food, and they're not going to discriminate. You know, meat is meat to them. Mm-hmm. As well as also just shows that not every uh, creature of size is a threat. Not just the T Rex or mm-hmm. the Raptor. Like even a small little compy is deadly. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting element to it. Like I I, th- I think I'm trying to recall when Grant is hearing about the report that this lizard remains that he gets. So he gets his, an X-ray of the. Uh, the compy he looks at it and the report is that it had bitten the little girl and he thinks to himself well it's unlikely that a lizard of this size would attack a, a person that was you know a bit older like that it just the size difference didn't equate and so there was an evidence there that even a small animal which is unfamiliar with a human would therefore react in a way they would eat it or attack it because it doesn't know any better whereas the raptors were told later on by malcolm i think he has this like, concept that Ah, these raptors are trying to kill people. So, like when they go on the tour, they visit the pen, and rather at the pen, the raptors attack the fence, and they go, ah, they're not so smart. And the guy's like, you just be happy that fence is there. And he goes, you know what's really interesting about this is that killing people and discovering that people are easy to kill, 
which is uh, kind of fabled in African lore with lions and tigers, and they come out of the bush, and when they get figure out that killing people is super easy, they do it a lot. So <laughs> that's bad. But there's this concept that when the raptors must have acquired this knowledge that killing people is good, whereas the copy isn't given the same treatment. The copy is said, ah, oh, it's unbelievable that it would do this, but there you go. So there's kind of yeah. a disconnect there. That's a little strange. As well as one of those things that there are two ways to talk about, you know, Grant's, like, his opinion on, like, oh, the compi or this lizard would attack. One, Grant has not met an average um, monitor lizard of any size. <laughs> that could even be a small, true, yeah. even, a, even a small monitor lizard will be very, will, will ruin your day. Two, it also just maybe just shows that he is an expert when it comes to dinosaurs, but we don't know everything about dinosaurs. Yeah, for sure. And you're right, Marty Gutierrez, I'm pretty sure, also said that lizard bites are common. Uh, he already says that. Yeah. So, you're right, Grant's uh, a little, little misunderstood, I think, in that scene. So, my real complaint with uh, with the, the infant death scene uh, is that the midwife reports that the death as sudden infant death syndrome, which couldn't have been the acceptable answer. Like, No, yeah, when I saw that, I'm just like, you could have just said rats or something. Something like but, like SIDS. It's just like like if it's a grade ten question on a pop quiz, what killed the baby with its face that's been eaten off, that's surrounded by bloody footprints? The answer isn't SIDS. That gets a failing yeah. grade. <laughs> like yeah. somebody somebody would know it. You can't just report that. Like though it it could be some of the interference with Indian. In all honesty. Oh, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. But she specifically says that she didn't want to lose her job or she didn't want to get shamed in the community. It's probably a small community. And so yeah, she didn't want, fair, to, didn't want to feel derelict of her responsibility. So she wanted to, to hide that uh, there was maybe something of her... I mean, how could... Well, I don't know. Do you feel responsible yeah, no, for I, animals coming yeah, in? Yeah, I got it. Kid? I wonder, yeah, that's completely fair. And Jen's interference is not un impossible, that's for sure. But anyway, one of those unnerving moments in the book, for sure. And in a way, it connects literally to Hammond's death at the end. So it's not only the same yeah. animal, but there's a I, moment where he talks about how he falls asleep like a baby in his crib uh, as he's fading away, which is pretty fascinating because it's literally saying the words that are in the same chapters as the same animals are preying upon the, the weak and the it, elderly and the young. Yeah, it just, yeah, these things, it's just like there are different types of predators you know the raptors you know are no discriminate while compies are the opportunists mm -hmm. they'll find an opportunity like either an infant a, a helpless baby or an old man who fought who fell and there was one other thing i think so and the other character that gets attacked by compies is tina and so tina describes mm -hmm. it as being very painful she got bit she screamed she cried uh it hurt a lot and Marty Gutierrez says something along the lines of it probably was very painful. Then they take a, a sample and they send it to the lab and it comes back as something akin to the venom of a king cobra uh, when it bites. Yeah, that's another thing. And, you know, the fact that they're venomous and, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, and it just shows that this could be, you know, either again, we don't know if these animals are venomous because venom glands can't really be preserved or it's just the meddling of engine, you know, copying haphazardly trying to just bridge the DNA of several related species mm -hmm. and not realizing the consequences of doing that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, but it does beg the question, if Tina felt that the bites were extraordinarily painful and that the toxin was like, it hurt, it, was, it doesn't quite match up with when Hammond gets bit because he's almost anesthetized. He's falling asleep and like dreaming away and has no worries in his, in his you know, no, no worries left in his head. And he's dreaming about opening up three new parks or something like that. And it's it, just inconsistent in that respect. Yeah. It could be inconsistent, maybe different 
quantity of bites. <laughs> Quantities of... Maybe it's just like, she was bit by one while he's being bit by a whole swarm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it just could be building up. And I think... It Maybe may- that's why they they like hunt in groups because they just basically accumulate their, their poison. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are tugging on his lip at the end. I think that one Which, of the finest moments... Yeah, there. that Lost World will take from. Yeah. So that's Compies. They eat your face. That's our brand. <laughs> they love faces. They love faces. You got a pretty face. So, uh... um, but if anyone got it the worst in this book, mm-hmm. it's Nedry. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They did all of that off screen in the film, but yeah, yeah. He got it. He got it pretty bad. And all the characters take no pity on him at all. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that's the one thing. I, again, like, um, not only is the book is horrific, it goes into you know, no pun intended, bloody detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why I say I convey a lot of the horror is mostly um, if you're just trying to do like, oh, these people die, you say, oh, they get attacked and you move on. But no, he like, um, uh, crying just completely goes into every detail, which I feel like was out of spite. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, remember, he originally wanted to, like Spielberg's original film version was kind of like the original intent crying wanted to do. Because he wanted to make it like more of an adventure book, but his publishers were like, eh, it's too kitty. And Brian's like, oh, okay, it's too kitty for you, huh? <laughs> so he, he did this at like the most absolute, most extreme possible. And a lot of that elements of uh, suspense, and even what kind of is really performed well in the, in, the, in the written tradition versus what can be really necessarily adapted to the film, comes through very, very well in his, in his death. So it begins, obviously it's during a storm, so there's, again, you have that... Uh, environment that's unnerving and scary to begin with pouring rain and the thunder and lightning that's obviously uh the one thing he didn't factor into his plan (laughs) it it was a dark and stormy night yeah and um the sensation of him being spit on and losing his sight is something that again the book can do that maybe a film can't because you can still portray literarily where you think it's coming from or where you you fear that it might be you can still feel the breath and you can still hear the footprints coming and stuff like that but you can't see you can't really portray those feelings those heightened senses and that dread necessarily with just a black screen (laughs) Um, yeah although they i guess but yeah it reminds me of like an alien where sigourney weaver's got her eyes shut and you can see the the xenomorph reaching out yeah, yeah, yeah 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 the, the most famous shot of alien three yeah and then um like that's kind of a way to you know you're not looking but you know what's there but in any case what he does in the book having uh you know i guess the dilophosaur kicks him or something like that and he reaches down he feels like a warm feeling in his hands and it turns out his intestines are pulling out of his yeah stomach. it's just so it's it's so sadistic yeah and so that that is captured so well a big part and plus he doesn't know what the dinosaur is he doesn't understand what's happening he doesn't know if he's in danger although obviously he is yeah it's really something and his final thoughts are that he's wishing for death like he hopes it yeah, will come as, soon he as wants the dilophosaur is basically going on his head like a snake yeah and so it lifts him up in his jaws by the head I always picture it like on the side of your head, grabbing like one upper jaw and the other on your ears. But it could have been the yeah. other way around. Like imagine it was like under your chin and behind your. Oh man. Yeah, like, and I can imagine this thing. Like again, these are freaks of nature. So like, it, it turns out like, oh, its jaws are widening like a snake. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, again, it just shows you like we don't know what these things can do. And like, it turns out that level source can spit venom. Yeah, that was pretty neat. 
<laughs> so that's two, yeah, venomous uh, animals in the park. I, it's interesting. I was just thinking the other day about whether um, some of the, the less armored or more defenseless herbivores might have been uh, like a skunk and have some sort of scent gland that could deter people. Yeah. Or or, or, I, or maybe, like, I would like to see something explored in the Jurassic Park, like, oh, you know, the carnivores are hyper-aggressive, but it seems for the most part, aside for, like, maybe a triceratops, when it gets a little, like, spooked, or stegosaurus, they're usually peaceful. Mm-hmm. In real life, a, like, in, like, zoos, for example, it's not the predators you got to worry about. It's some of the herbivores, like, yeah. Zebras uh, do more injuries to zookeepers than any other uh, carnivore. Yeah, it's because they're they live in an environment full of carnivores, so they basically have genetic um, PTSD, like a generational um, like fear, <laughs> to the yeah. point where they don't just attack anything. There's a book called Gun Germs and Steel. I can't recall the author, and he makes an interesting point. It's kind of talking about like agricultural development and how where pockets of of um, being able to do grow food and uh perform husbandry on animals and stuff like that taming animals where people were successful at that they were able to develop culture faster in any case he makes an interesting point that through the history of mankind horses and elephants things like that have been tamed and and in fact some of them have been domesticated but the zebra is an ass and it won't do it (laughs) the zebra is just wild and they can't do anything with them and i don't know what that's all about but uh, that's an interesting it, perspective, mean, yeah. And the herbivores, I think in The Lost World, in the second book, in the first, in Jurassic Park, the herbivores is like, don't worry, it's a herbivore, and they're fine. The herbivores present no danger to anybody. They never seem to, at all. And often they'll be like, no, no, never, don't worry about this one. It is a herbivore. Whereas Sarah Harding says in The Lost World that approaching different herbivores is, it depends on what it is. Some of them are extraordinarily dangerous, and some of them are not. But in this, in, you're right, in, the, in this book, it doesn't consider herbivores a threat. Which is fine. There are plenty of carnivores that are, are plenty plenty of threat, which is good. But it's an interesting perspective. Obviously, I agree entirely. It uh, it doesn't treat herbivores as dangerous as they rightfully should have been. Yeah. Though, like, the way the dangers come from the different carnivores are mm-hmm. on a way. Like, the T-Rex is basically the giant monster of yeah. the book. It is just, the thing is, like, oh, it's dangerous because it's huge and it's a carnivore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know like it can just bite anything in one in one bite you know it could, it stomps so it, it the danger is just both in terms of just its intent of eating you as well as its sheer size it's mm-hmm. you know you know 40 to 50 feet long you know 20 feet tall it is giant it is a giant monster basically you know like the th- like you know how the characters go not only they're afraid of being eaten but you know the kids in the car you know, the car itself could be a threat because the thing is so big. Yeah. And what makes it all the more problematic, and they said, uh, how do I put this? There's a line about now you've got this thing loose, the biggest predator the world's ever known, and you got no way to stop it. And that is because, in, in like in common films, we got to find some way that it takes down your cell phone so you can't just call for help. So you need to isolate yeah. your heroes with uh, no defenses. And so you do that by somehow finding a way to contrive a, a plot point where people can't call for help. That's what they do in modern films. In Jurassic Park, they got to find some way that there just isn't a gun. <laughs> and so there are no guns at a zoo. And pretty much plan B at a zoo is gun. They have them. Uh, when when Yeah, I was going to say most zoo like they're, they're gonna... most zoos have a gun just in case. Uh, like I remember there's one like there are several protocols for certain animals. Um like the one animal I know for a fact that mo- like most zoos will say kill on sight the minute this thing gets mm-hmm. loose mm-hmm. for chimpanzees because chimpanzees are very resilient to trank and 
are hyper aggressive and hyper intelligent. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things when the chimp is loose and it's angry, it's just, you have to kill it. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's caused more damage just trying to trank it. And a lion and, or tiger um, would like just playing with you would cause all kinds of trouble. Yeah. And that obviously when the gorilla, Harambe or whatever his name was, grabbed that kid, I mean, he didn't last 10 minutes, I don't think, after that. <laughs> like, well, the, the Harambe, that was, uh, you know, memes aside, you know, the way the internet kind of overdid it you know a gorilla is actually you know not as much of a threat than a chimpanzee because gorillas are very shy gorillas mm -hmm. are you know um, if a gorilla escapes it's not going to cause a rampage nine out of ten it's going to find a corner and just hide because mm -hmm. gorillas are incredibly shy gorillas mm -hmm. are more they're they're not gentle giants but they're nowhere near as aggressive as a chimpanzee and mm -hmm. with the in dress park almost all the carnivores at this point because we know so little of them and nine out of ten and Unlike, you know, the biggest carnivore that's going to escape in a zoo is a bear. Mm -hmm. The biggest carnivore that's going to escape in Jurassic Park is a T-Rex. Yeah, that's And right. that's a much... So, again, that, that, like, eyebrow raising that there's... Like, at, at least the one thing in, in the um, Jurassic Park film is they have guns, but there's only one person trained with a gun. That's a contrived <laughs> thing is, you know, they had plenty of guns, but only, the only person that's trained is Muldoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he would have been he would have been entirely sufficient, but he was unarmed, unfortunately. Even in the well, we don't have to get into the films because apparently <laughs> bullets don't affect dinosaurs for some reason. But uh, nonetheless, Nedry gets I think scapegoated too. Like he seems to be like yeah. it's all his fault. He was the only problem with Jurassic Park, and if he had not done what he did for greed, that Malcolm's predictions would not have come true, which is I don't think the truth. I think the animals would have got out, the park would have failed, but like. It would have been with tourists. Like, it would have been a different yeah. animal altogether. Some, here's the thing. Tourists are idiots. <laughs> How many cases are some dumbass will heckle? They, you know, we got people that heckle the lions, mm -hmm. you know, the bears. You know, if Jurassic Park eventually opens, I'm surprised Jurassic World never had any, like, animal attacks until the Indominus came out. But going for the book, mm -hmm. it... If for some miracle this actually, because it feels like the dinosaurs are already attacking people and things are working as is, mm -hmm. you know, but if the park does open, I feel like a lawsuit will probably arrive day one. Yeah. You know, like someone's going to heckle the T-Rex. Someone's going to heckle the raptors. You know, someone is like, try, is going to take a, try to take a picture a little too close. And at best, they'll probably touch the fence and they'll get shocked. Yeah. At worst, they're going to lose an arm mm -hmm. because, you know, these things, like, especially the raptors, the raptors are in, they have, they have, they know murderous intent. They, they're, they're on homicide mode all the time. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. like, if a raptor sees an opportunity, it's not going to miss it. And a T-Rex, you know, is not going to miss an opportunity. You know, that T-Rex is probably going to bite a guy's arm and pull him through the fence and we'll have a cooked meal by the time the guy's on the other side. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, even the layout of the park, you're right. It doesn't sound like there was anything stopping people from touching the electric fences. It just felt like... So as I envision it, the in the novel, it descri it's described as if, say, you went to a national park in, in the Serengeti or something like that, and you would go out into the animal preserve, and it was kind of like an open field, and you just saw the animals in the wild kind of on their own, whereas this one, they separate the carnivores and the herbivores with fences. But other than that, uh, you're supposed to be kind of on... Not necessarily going resort. exhibit to exhibit through a zoo, but but more kind of journeying through the this landscape. Although on a track, you're kind of controlled yeah. on where you can go, but 
but it's supposed to be this larger open concept thing rather than an actual bonafide zoo. It's more of a nature preserve sort of thing. It, it, it's basically a safari tour. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the, best way to com- the best way to compare it is less like you're going to a zoo and more like you're going to say Animal Kingdom in Disney. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I feel Animal Kingdom is probably the best comparison to Jurassic Park, the original park at least. And I wonder how the fence thing even works, because obviously the Tyrannosaur had to go through a fence. But when they went to go inspect the Stegosaurus in the book, which is adapted to be the Triceratops in the film, they didn't have to go through any fence to go and see this animal. And and uh, when they're driving on the roads and stuff like that, the maintenance roads, there were Patasauruses just walking across and and, and I, I, their... again, again, you know, like even though the books is like, oh, the herbivores are fine, you know, there's going to be some idiot <laughs> going to heckle these animals, you know. And look, they already said there's um, uh, Triceratops are mentioned in the book, correct? Yes. They, like, what is like? Someone is going to like say like Toro, Toro, the Triceratops, like oh look at this dumb thing, and then yeah, next thing you know that that Triceratops gets angry and you know rams through the car. Like again, like at least in Jurassic World, they're in one of those actual safari car trucks. You know that the things are built to be you know going all terrain, and this these are just like I don't remember the name of the car model, but these, they're clearly not safari cars. Mm-hmm. So they're Toyotas, but I think in the movie they're Mercedes. Yeah, either way, these are not built to, you know, go on a safari. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're on a track. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're a Toyota because everything was uh, invested by Japanese uh, investors. And so I think yeah. they would use Japanese technologies and stuff like that. I think. And, I, and another thing, it, it's very clear that this park was... The, I think the horror as well is just the horror of negligence. Mm-hmm. Because it's clear that there are so many dumb... I, like. You know, Emma says, like, oh, you know, bad idea number one, making a park about dinosaurs. And I'm just like, yeah, it, okay, more ethically, it's a bad idea. But if you have people that know how to treat animals in some shape or form, and so it's just, you know, it's funny that, you know, spend no expense, but clearly there are expenses being, you know, yeah. paid, spared. Because, yeah. you know, like, if anyone with any common sense would know, like, you don't, if you're doing a safari tour, you could at least have, you know, equipment as ways to make sure that these things don't run you off the road and like like include like invisible barriers you know again like animal kingdom actually has invisible barriers so the animals don't actually go and you know attack the people attack the tourists Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have like barriers in the the paddocks to make sure the t-rex even if the fences don't work the t-rex doesn't have any way to just you know like oh fence is down i'll just walk through uh, ways to make sure the animal like have like Five different ways to make sure, like, oh, fence don't work, plan B, plan C, plan D. Yeah. Because, again, we have that for a lion. You should have <laughs> ten of those for a T-Rex. Yeah, fences, again, I, Yeah, there are lots of things. I feel when it good. comes to safety, your idea is like, how are, are we sure it is safe? It's a T-Rex. Make it safer. Yeah, make it safer. <laughs> if, if for nothing else, it is a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> I feel like just, like, the, at, the, at the end of the day, it's like, you're dealing with a T-Rex. That should just be instant right there and it's clear that just hammond is more about like he's he's banking on the fact that these are dinosaurs mm-hmm. and it, because of that he's not banking on what these dinosaurs could do clearly mm-hmm. part of the the infrastructure and one of the things that we're told is a flaw in at least their tracking systems is the lagoon and the jungle river and that when grant and the kids are riding on the jungle river or something like that, they cannot be picked up by the motion sensors, and so they are hidden from view. And that we're, we're told also that as animals kind of go near that, that they get lost from the counting system. They would lose 
they say the Othies sometimes get missed for these reasons. We also know is, the Tyrannosaurus swims just fine, and that the juvenile is eating fish that they stock in the pond, which says if the river is not barred from the rest of the park, that any animal that chose to swim around could easily swim from paddock to paddock <laughs> to go anywhere yeah, throughout right. the park. It's curious. That's one. Uh, by the way, that is one scene I wish yes. I wish yes. stayed in the film. Not because, because um, I'm not sure you saw the new Apple TV Plus documentary, Prehistoric Planet, but they emphasize that the T-Rex could swim very well. And people are like, oh my God, you know, we discovered that the T-Rex swim. It's like, no, we've been new about that. Brian, again, <laughs> included in the book, it's just the scene was cut. And I've really, it's one of those, it's one of those scenes. It's also a really good scene in terms of the horror. It's just mm-hmm. people think like the T-Rex is just a big, you know, lumbering predator on the land. But it's one of those things, like, again, we don't know, and we do make discoveries, but not everyone pays attention to new paleological studies unless it's, like, something super big, like, oh, it turns out the T-Rex has feathers or something like that. Yeah. But with this, it's like, oh, the T-Rex can swim. Crap. <laughs> yes. It, of it, course he can like, swim, it, <laughs> is what he yeah, says. Yeah, but it's one of those things, it's just like, oh. The, it, again, it's the audience expectations. Like, just when you think, like, what could be any worse than, like, it, it's one like for example like you're on it and you see the t-rex on the shore it's like ha and we got then you see it can swim yeah it, it again it shows you know the horror of playing with the expectations of the audiences like we already know yeah. the t-rex is a big large like da- most dangerous creature on land but we didn't realize it, it's an all-terrain predator yeah i think and you know what we're, we're just running up on an hour so we're getting short on time but maybe we'll leave it this last scene at big rex in the lagoon but i can't think of anything more terrifying about being in open water with a carnivore one that can easily consume you with or cause serious trouble swimming around, chasing you in that water. You're entirely at their mercy. You know, on the ground, you might be able to dip or dodge or, like, I don't know, look, like, maybe throw a punch at its nose or something. But, like, when you're in the water, you're as about as defenseless as it gets. And that's just faced with a living, breathing Tyrannosaurus. There'd be, there's no running. You can't do any defensive combat. Like, it's you're just you're in no shape to defend yourself. There's nothing worse. I can't believe it. It'd be awful. Yeah. It makes a great ride, though. <laughs> okay, for sure. And it's also just like, I don't know, things like, you don't, you didn't expect dinosaurs can... Yeah. Like, thank, like, thank God you didn't decide to clone, you know, an actual aquatic dinosaur. Yeah. What if they realized, like, oh, we got Spinosaur DNA, and this is before the major discoveries of Spinosaur, mm-hmm. and the clone is just like, oh... We just cloned a sea monster. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, that'd be that'd be wild too. It reminds me of again. Was it which which alien was it where they uh, they were swimming? The uh, resurrection was that resurrection? A lot of good alien has done a lot of good sci-fi stuff in it, and uh... like Alien is probably one of the best examples of sci-fi horror. And I feel you know if you look at Reed Jurassic Park or even some of the um, more intense scenes in the film. Mm-hmm. It's you see the influence of just classic sci-fi horror, mm-hmm. and you know, if again, uh, one thing I I really feel that people miss, I kind of miss about the U franchise, and that's not really advertised today is Jurassic Park was kind of advertised as horror, as some horror. Like again, the ride, for example, you know, you know the commercials say like face your the tagline for the, the Jurassic Park ride is face your fears. Yeah, okay. And and you know the I, like the thing is like you're supposed to be like oh crap dinosaurs are loose they're gonna eat you and now it's just like oh you know dinosaurs are cool and that like yeah dinosaurs are cool but 
I would love to see an authentic, a book accurate adaptation of Jurassic Park, just to like fully explore the horror. Because again, dinos like dinosaurs are animals, but not animal animals are not pretty. When, like when, there is a there is a Twitter literally called "Nature is Scary," and you watch some of this <laughs> stuff, and it's just you really feel like you're losing your sanity when you realize just how dangerous these animals can act, dangerous modern animals can be. So imagine. You scaled them up to the size of, you know, actual dinosaurs. Well, we didn't get a chance to really talk about the Tyrannosaurus attack on the Land Cruisers. We did not get a chance to talk about the Juvenile's attacks on Ed Regis and the Leeches. We didn't get to talk about Big Rex under the Waterfall, the Sierradactyls in the Aviary, the Velociraptors in the Visitor Center. The Velociraptors the <laughs> are, are, they're slashers in this, in this book. Yes. They are, they are flat out slasher villains. Like the way they're they're the suspense, it really feels like you're being stalked by a, a homicidal killer. Mm-hmm. Would you? Would there be a day sometime in the future? Would you be interested in coming back and doing this again sometime? Oh yes, 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 yes. Because we yes. got a ton of things that are still to cover. This book is just rich <laughs> with with subject yeah. matter. So this has been amazing. So tell people uh, about. You said you have a new season of the Gargantua cast coming up. Uh, where can yes. they find it? What, do, what can they expect? So the new season is tentatively being released this summer. We originally aimed for a spring release, but you know, life hit us, so we're aiming for a summer release. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Wherever you have a podcast, we invaded. Right on. And uh, what kind of films? Do you know what you might be covering? We're going to cover. We're going to do a reevaluation of classic Godzilla movies, mm-hmm. and we're going to tackle a few recent releases. Mm-hmm. You know, from both the major studios and some independent kaiju media okay right on and there must be lots of good stuff out there now oh yeah you know there should be good stuff we need to have enough content to make a podcast (laughs) (laughs) absolutely right all right thank you so much for joining me today it's been uh, a real pleasure to have you on i'm so glad that you've been you know excited and and, uh, forthcoming to to join me it's been excellent no problem no problem a big thank you to my special guest chris mcdonald from the gargantu cast uh wonderful having him was great to meet him and uh and have somebody new uh, share some ideas on, on the book. I really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks. Uh, the text this week is Welcome, spanning from pages 79 to 80. Just a short one. In a synopsis, Sattler, Gennaro, Grant, and Malcolm are suddenly faced with an apatosaurus that Hammond has cloned, and they're stupefied by what this means to reality as they know it. Hammond is proud, and he outlines their itinerary as his guests. And then he leaves them in the care of Ed Regis. And our characters... Ellie Sattler, she begins as our point-of-view character, and she is awestruck, continuously repeating, My God. Donald Gennaro, he is speechless at the sight of the Apatosaurus, and he knew what Hammond was up to. He's known about Hammond's plans for years, but never believed it would happen. Recall the fundraising campaign implied that the investment was in a science that was highly speculative, and he's shocked into silence. He's so impressed with the dinosaurs at first blush, he concedes and reaffirms to himself, quote, we are going to make a fortune on this place. And you'll recall that Spielberg adapts that line right into his movie, right at this moment, too, when they discover the, the sauropod. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant's view of the apatosaurus comes with an entire environmental consumption. We hear where he's standing, on a path on the side of the hill, what he feels, the mist on his face, what he sees, he stares at the gray necks craning above the palms, how he feels, he's dizzy as if the ground were sloping away too steeply, and he has trouble breathing. He has a whole body experience, and Crichton does a terrific job portraying this. 
Grant sees what he never expected to see. He believes what was only momentarily before unbelievable. The apatosaurs are, quote, perfect. Grant's stunned mind makes academic associations, and he laughs, perhaps from stupefaction. Within seeing the animal for only a few seconds, he's already begun to accept it as true, and therefore uses the apatosaur to answer long-standing paleontological questions. And the apatosaur calls in trance Grant. And I think Spielberg and Sam Neill do a wonderful job of capturing that full-body uh, euphoria <laughs> uh, in the film as well. John Hammond, when Grant laughs at the apatosaurs, Hammond worries that something might be wrong with them, as in the, the dinosaurs don't look right to Grant, and that really worries him. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm questions the dinosaurs' authenticity. Are they animatronic, he wonders on page 80 and acquiesces, they are very lifelike. And Spielberg also adapts this line to Gennaro on the tour in the film, when Gennaro questions Hammond on whether the things he's seeing on the tour are autoerotic, uh, and Hammond cuts him off, saying, no, they're not animatronic. And that's a good gag for those of us rewatching 20 years later. Ed Regis. Regis says the apatosaur trumpets are, quote, their call, which is, quote, welcoming us to the island. And the apatosaurs, at first thought, it's extraordinarily beautiful. They make low trumpeting sounds like elephants, and they're big. They're so big. They were enormous, big as a house, and so many of them. They have gray necks. They're perfect medium-sized sauropods. North American herbivores, late Jurassic, commonly referred to as Brontosaurus, first discovered by Edward Drinker Cope in 1876 in Montana, associated with the Morrison Formation in Colorado, Utah, and Oklahoma, and it had recently been reclassified as a Diplodocus based on skull appearance. It's clearly not in the water, moving too quickly, the head and neck shifting above the palms in a very active manner, a surprisingly active manner. We witness six apatosaurs in this scene, and we're told that there are 17 apatosaurs in Jurassic Park. The animals join together in their trumpeting song. Stylistic techniques. We have italics. Uh, Ellie uses italics when she says, my God. I guess suggesting that uh, she really is I, <laughs> speechless. Pacing. Crichton lingers on the subject of being awestruck by the apatosaurus. It starts with Ellie and how she views the animal with dignity and beauty. Then the narrative switches perspective, but not the focal point. We get Gennaro's view of the apatosaurus, and through which lens he sees it too, and then switches over to Grant. We get more than Grant's perspective. We get his feelings and what he's feeling too. We get an interpretation of the dinosaurs, complete with his consumption of the subject with all his senses. He is entranced with the apatosaur calls. We really linger on this moment, and it's separated specifically from arriving and introducing the island. Crichton has specifically taken a moment to let the majesty and gravitas, the overwhelming sense of awe that washes over his characters as well, wash over the reader. It's a terrific example of pacing and spending time on what's important to your story and to your characters. You come away feeling the scene. I came away with, with goosebumps, and I still do. <laughs> Did it just get misty in here? Form. <laughs> and again, we have a short chapter, which means it either moves forward the plot or reveals character. This small chapter is the inciting incident thrusting us into the next act. Yes, but more importantly, we get an expression of each of the highlighted characters' perspective of the island. Ellie sees beauty and dignity in the dinosaur. Gennaro sees hope and riches. Grant sees answers to paleontological questions in the field. Malcolm needles at him and perhaps half hoping that they're animatronic, but subtly privately, keeping his observations to himself. Hammond metaphorically pulls the blanket 
off the birdcage, just like in his pachyderm portfolio pitches, revealing the great result of his secretive doings here on the private island. And Regis is the dutiful employee welcoming Hammond's guests. And the subtext beneath it all is Hammond's flaunting of responsibility in the face of God, playing God himself, heedless of the consequences. And of course, those who defy God get smote. Foreshadowing. Hammond gives our visitors an itinerary, meaning they'll get a complete tour of the facilities and a trip to see the dinosaurs in the park, quote, later in the afternoon. And Hammond plans to join them for dinner to answer any further questions afterwards. We have a little bit of anthropomorphization in terms of literary techniques. It's almost anthropomorphization or, or personification, where Ellie says that there's, quote, almost a dignity to the apatosaurs' movements, where they're given this regal quality of posture and presence, a purposefulness, or whatever dignity looks like. It's dignity! Gah! Don't you even know dignity when you see it? Similes. The apatosaur makes a low trumpeting sound rather like an elephant. Crichton is conjuring similes and metaphors that do a good job relating the qualities of an unknown, unseen object like dinosaurs and theoretical concepts to easily accessible reference points. And that's what these literary techniques are all about. They're just as real as you could want on page 79. This is an odd conditional tense and a simile smacked together, but I guess it relates to the idea that if you wanted real dinosaurs, then these are as real as what you want. It's a bit clunky as a simile. And then next, Grant's dizzy as if the ground were sloping away too steeply. And you can relate to this pretty well. It's an effective simile. They reminded Grant of oversized giraffes. They had the same pleasant, rather stupid gaze. And again, you can picture a giraffe well enough and imagine that these apatosaurs have a similar personality as they're walking around. Motifs. We have the concept of responsibility and safety returning here. Gennaro reveals in this chapter that his aid to Hammond during the pachyderm portfolio capital raising was done under the belief that nothing would ever come of it. That the, quote, awesome power of the new genetic technology was considered to be just so many words in an overwrought sales pitch to him. But, quote, the power suddenly became clear to him on page 79. This is that turning point in Gennaro's character arc where he can make the virtuous choice or the selfish choice. Does he lean into shutting this place down, protecting the world from an awesome power, or into capitalizing on this investment to make lots and lots of money? Of course, perhaps through the grooming of his job in investment banking and his purpose to grow capital, he thinks we are going to make a fortune on this place. A fortune. So Gennaro, interestingly, is sort of a chimera on this island. And this sort of doubles back to our earlier confusion with Cowan Swain and Ross representing both Hammond and Hammond's victims in the novel. Gennaro, too, is wearing two opposing hats. He's on both sides of the biotechnology debate, the responsible and the irresponsible sides. He's on Hammond's irresponsible use of biotech side, tasked and employed in generating as much capital as possible, but also on the responsible side, tasked with the instructions from his boss, quote, if there's a single problem, burn it to the ground, on page 58. And when we describe the two sides of this debate, that is, acting responsibly and irresponsibly with great power, we have a clear, specific agent representing one side, that's Hammond's and irresponsibility, but not really any clear agent representing the other side, which may be another one of Crichton's criticisms. You know, who's standing up on the side of, of good here or responsibility? And Gennaro hopes to God the island is safe. And in terms of ecological criticism, as we're cataloging things, this concept that there's no agent that is advocating for the environment, that, that that voice is absent or missing or lacking or or silent in this novel is perhaps another comment that can be cataloged as something that we're, we're looking into, that the environment 
isn't represented by by an agent. Although Malcolm kind of has comments later on. Discussion. Let's talk about the dinosaurs. Crichton's credit to popularizing a new image of dinosaurs begins in this chapter, and perhaps we should reframe our perspective of the first two acts through this outdated dinosaur lens after unpacking it. In this chapter, we're told that books portray dinosaurs as oversized, dumpy creatures, whereas live dinosaurs are graceful, almost with dignity in their movements, and it is quick. There's nothing lumbering or dull about its behavior, we're told on 79. In this case, we get an apatosaurus, and it represents some common dinosaur misconceptions very fittingly. Commonly referred to as Brontosaurus, first discovered by Edward Drinker Cope in 1876, Montana, associated with the Morrison Formation in Colorado, Utah, and Oklahoma, and it had recently been reclassified as a Diplodocus based on a skull appearance, we're told on page 80. Traditionally, the Brontosaurus was thought to spend most of its time in shallow water, which would help support its large bulk, we're told on page 80 as well. It's clearly not in the water, moving too quickly, the head and neck shifting above the palms in a very active manner, and even so, a surprisingly active manner, we're told. The God Complex. My God, says Ellie softly on page 79, and repeats herself. My God. She says it again as it's revealed. There is an entire herd of apatosaurs on this island. This does a good job of relating how extraordinary and striking it is to behold the dinosaurs, but there may be a double entendre here, symbolically. They're expressing their disbelief, but Crichton may also be layering the conceit that Hammond has been playing God on this island. And I mean, obviously, in the book, that's fairly transparent. But I mean, more specifically, this less conspicuous use of my God now that they're on Hammond's Island is likely a new, more subtle expression of Hammond's God complex, which ties into entitlement and being above the laws and stuff like that that we know related to, to John Hammond. Hammond has wrangled the, quote, awesome power of the new genetic technology, which Gennaro had formerly considered to be just so many words in an overwrought sales pitch. The power suddenly became clear to him on page 79. Crichton then says Gennaro thinks, quote, he hopes to God the island it was safe. And what's to be said about that? That he's praying perhaps to a, the wrong God. And so Grant has, looking at these things too, a whole body experience. And Crichton does a terrific job portraying that whole body experience upon seeing the dinosaurs. Grant sees what he never expected to see. He believes what was only momentarily before unbelievable. There could be a case here for 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 like epiphany this is the blind seeing the deaf hearing it's an act of god a miracle the animals are perfect to grant so there's a lot of i guess god stuff intervention divine intervention that could be considered in this in this chapter hammond's dream when grant laughs at the apatosaurs hammond worries that something is wrong with the animals on page 80 that they're not scientifically accurate Grant doesn't realize this, but his affirmation steals Hammond's nerve when it comes to making changes at the park. Hammond says, quote, everything's perfectly fine over and over when asked about safety, human deaths, opening delays, and escaped animals, but worries when the dinosaurs may not be authentic looking to his paleontologist consultant. Hammond's concerns have always been, first and foremost, about the animals. This is his chief concern, real dinosaurs at Jurassic Park. And compare this to his backstory in the film where Hammond has an animatronic flea circus which inspires him to make something real to make Jurassic Park with real attractions. And those are affectations from the filmmaker, a Spielbergism that helps you sympathize with Hammond's mistake. Crichton's Hammond is not cut from that same cloth. This Hammond is singularly focused on cloning authentic dinosaurs because that's his dream. And if the dinosaurs are real, there's extraordinary profits to be made. And as an aside, perhaps the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World sequel writers should take note of this prospect that real, authentic 
Believable dinosaurs will delight audiences, not necessarily movie monsters. But don't let me get off on a tangent there. Uh, notable omissions in this chapter. Dennis Nedry is on this tour. He's standing right there with him, but we don't hear anything about him. He's kind of forgotten about in a lot of respects. We don't get his perspective on any of this. I presume that he would like dinosaurs, though. Similarities to the movie. In this scene in the movie, we get a huge sauropod as well that startles and amazes the, the people. Gennaro has similar lines, impressed about how much money they're going to make. Grant has a similar reaction where he, his whole body uh, fights what it's seeing. And uh, welcome Jura to Jurassic Park is proudly said, ushering us into the next act of the story. But there's some differences in the film. An Apatosaurus is uh, used in the novel, not a Brachiosaurus, which is used in the film. And there's only one Brachiosaurus, not a whole herd. Although I guess later on they see a whole herd of animals and they actually are walking through a, a swamp, but oh well. Sattler isn't confounded or distracted by extinct and poisonous paleobotany in, uh, in the novel here. That comes soon, but not yet. And there's a crude hand-painted sign over the path that reads, Welcome to Jurassic Park. Not Hammond delightfully welcoming us like a matron. So lots of good stuff there. Thanks to my guest today, Chris McDonald from the Gargantia cast. There's so many ways people engage with Jurassic Park. And there's so many elements to it that have drawn our attention, captured and sustained it. And it's always fun to dig into the science or the dinosaurs or the horror or the chaos and everything else that this novel throws at us. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you would like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. You can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, but also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Inventory, and the worst of them all, The Street Gamers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on Twitter at rogersryan. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that Until next time. I think we know the spark is gone, you spend.